Welcome into another edition of the Doug Russell Podcast. Glad to have you along. As always, you can connect with us on our socials. You can find uh, the show at Doug Russell Pod on both Instagram and Twitter for everything that we do, including our entire back catalog of shows. You can find us maybe where you found us today at www.dougrussellpod.com. The Baseball Hall of Fame held its induction ceremonies for whatever reason on a Wednesday, but nevertheless... What we saw in Cooperstown on Wednesday was a celebration of three players and a couple of executives that were really deserving of induction into Cooperstown. But I want to focus on one guy. I think most of baseball is focusing on Derek Jeter. And I understand that. Derek Jeter was the guy who won all of the rings with the Yankees. Most hits in Yankees history. Number two, the captain. Everything that you could possibly lay at Derek Jeter's feet as far as accolades. Yes, he's earned. He was the face of the Yankees. He was the face of Major League Baseball for so many years. And when you play for the Yankees and when you win World Series championships, that's going to happen. So I get that. So he doesn't need me to give him any more plaudits. Neither does Larry Walker, because Larry Walker has an entire country, Canada, that is giving him his due and his flowers. But Ted Simmons never did, and I was always wondering why. And for many years, whenever I thought about Ted Simmons, whether or not he belonged in the Hall of Fame, it was just kind of a shrug of the shoulders, and it was, I mean, okay, he was maybe in the Hall of Very Good, but I don't know that I'd put him in the Hall of Fame. And then you put his numbers up against who so many of us consider to be the greatest catcher of all time. Uh, Certainly he's in the conversation, but Johnny Bench. And Johnny Bench and Ted Simmons, their numbers are remarkably the same. We'll get into that in a minute. But I was trying to figure out, well, let's try to look at this in context. Why did Ted Simmons get so little Hall of Fame respect from the writers? So I Googled that very question, and I came up to cooperstowncred.com. And the article is titled, Ted Simmons, Finally a Hall of Famer. And it asks that very question. Why did Ted Simmons get so little Hall of Fame respect? And this is what they write. Having retired after the 88 season, Ted Simmons debuted on the Hall of Fame ballot in 1994. At the time, Simmons had the sixth most home runs for any major league catcher in baseball history. His 1,389 career RBI was second best all-time to Yogi Berra. His 2,472 career hits and 483 career doubles were, at the time, the most for any catcher ever. His 1,074 runs scored were the fourth most ever behind Carlton Fisk, Yogi Berra, and Johnny Bench. And while that might not sound like the stuff of first ballot Hall of Famers, it still seems like the resume of a strong candidate. The collective body of baseball writers decided that Simba was not a strong candidate at all. Of the 34 players who received at least one vote, Simmons finished 26th, gaining just 17 out of a possible 456 votes. That was a total of 3.7%. Since he had fallen six votes short of the minimum 5% threshold, the 94 vote permanently ended his chances at the Hall of Fame through the Baseball Writers Association of America. So why did Simmons get so little support from the writers? I can think of a couple of other reasons, although it's all speculative. When it came time to cast votes for Simmons, the careers of Carlton Fisk and Gary Carter had just come to an end. Both players had more career home runs and were two-way players, great behind the plate as well as at it. 
At the same time, a young Ivan Rodriguez was showing the world what a first-class defensive backstop looked like. In addition, a young rookie named Mike Piazza was showing what a premium hitting catcher looked like. Piazza hit 318 with 35 home runs and 112 RBIs in his inaugural campaign, completed just months before the Hall of Fame vote. And then they go into who was on the 1994 Baseball Writers Association of America Hall of Fame ballot. This is what they write. It's also true that the 94 Hall of Fame ballot, like those in recent years, was packed with talented newcomers. 300-game winners Steve Carlton and Don Sutton were first-timers on that ballot, as well as 300-saver Bruce Souter. Other newcomers included Greg Nettles, Ron Guidry, and Dave Concepcion, who had the fame and pedigree of having won two World Series championships each. Among the holdover candidates, the ballot also contained future inductees Phil Necro, Tony Perez, Ron Santo, and Orlando Cepeda, who was in his final year of eligibility from the writers. There were other solid candidates to vote for as well. Steve Garvey and Louis Tiant were on that ballot. There was also Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Dick Allen, Ken Boyer, Joe Torre, Veda Pinson, Minnie Minoso, Kurt Flood, Bobby Bonds, Rusty Staub, George Foster, Mickey Lolich, and Vita Blue. Pete Rose got 19 votes as a write-in candidate. So that's what he was up against. And many of the guys that I mentioned are not in the Hall of Fame. It took Dick Allen forever to get into the Hall of Fame. Joe Torre got in as a manager. Ken Boyer never got in. Kurt Flood should be in. He's not in. It took Ron Santo forever to get in. It took Tony Perez a long time to get in. It took Phil Necro a while to get in. So when you add all of that up, I mean, these are your contemporaries. It wasn't just Johnny Bench. It was Steve Carlton. It was Don Sutton, Bruce Souter. It was Ron Santo, Tony Perez, Phil Necro. That's why he got so little respect from the writers, I think. But if you look at his numbers compared, I mean, look, catching is a difficult position to be good offensively at. You're generally good at one or the other. You're almost never great at both. But intangibles-wise, Ted Simmons was the glue to the 1982 Milwaukee Brewers, who now have five Hall of Famers. When you look at that 1982 team, and and... Look, I know that there are a whole generation of Brewers fans that are tired of hearing about 1982, and this was a team that lost the World Series, and that's true. But you look at who was on that team. There's now five guys in Cooperstown. Robin Yount, who obviously spent his entire career with the Brewers. Paul Molitor, who spent most of his career with the Brewers. Raleigh Fingers, who had his best season with the Brewers. He was an MVP with the Brewers, a Cy Young Award winner with the Brewers. Then you had Don Sutton, who the Brewers wouldn't have gotten to the 1982 World Series without him. And now Ted Simmons. But it's instructive for anyone who doubts his Hall of Fame candidacy to ask, well, then is Johnny Bench a Hall of Famer? Well, of course Johnny Bench is a Hall of Famer. Johnny Bench maybe the greatest catcher of all time. Certainly the greatest catcher of his generation. And when you talk about the greatest catchers that ever played the game of baseball, he is in the conversation. I don't know. I mean, look, you can if you want to go with Pudge, modern day, well, there's two Pudges. I guess there's Carlton Fisk and Pudge Rodriguez. I was talking about Rodriguez specifically. I mean, he's a great had a rocket for an arm and could also hit. Carlton Fisk, two-way player, could hit, could defend his position. Gary Carter, a Hall of Famer. But Johnny Bench is in that conversation. Let's look at their numbers between 1971 and 1980, 10 seasons. The 10 seasons that I think that you can fairly say they were both in their quote-unquote heyday. Johnny Bench, 
batting average. 263, Ted Simmons, 301. That's significant. That's almost 40 points. Johnny Bench does have more home runs. There's no question about that. 100 more home runs uh, in that time frame. 269 to 169. Still 169 home runs. I mean, that's significant, but no, Johnny Bench has a clear advantage there. No question. You look at runs batted in between 1971 and 1980. Johnny Bench and Ted Simmons were neck and neck. Johnny Bench had a handful more, 933 to 902. A handful more, about the same. Also in that time frame, let's just go with base hits. Ted Simmons, more than 300 more hits than Johnny Bench. 1,631 for Simmons, 1,309 for Johnny Bench. And look, I know there's a lot of numbers that are swimming around. It's like day one of radio school. Don't give out too many numbers on the air because you can't visualize them very well. So I'm going to try to take it as slow as I can. But just to give you an example of these guys were really, really close in so many categories. Doubles. Ted Simmons had a lot more doubles than Johnny Bench. 324 doubles to Johnny Bench's 241. On base percentage, close. Simmons with a slight edge, 367 to 348. Slugging percentage, close. Bench, because he hit more home runs, has a slight edge over Ted Simmons, but it is slight, 479 to 466. OPS plus, for whatever it's worth, they are neck and neck. Uh, Ted Simmons with 131, Johnny Bench 130, neck and neck. And War wins above replacement, again, a measure, not the only measure, but a measure, neck and neck. 46 for Bench, 45.3 for Simmons. That's O-War, offensive war. So those are the numbers that are comparing Ted Simmons against the arguably greatest catcher of all time and certainly the greatest catcher of the late 20th century. But it took Ted Simmons until this week to get enshrined in Cooperstown where he belongs. And if you doubted what kind of a Hall of Fame person Ted Simmons was, this was the speech that he gave in Cooperstown on Wednesday. And I just want to, I didn't have time on my radio show to give you the whole speech uh, if you were listening to the game night on Wednesday night, but we don't have time parameters here on a podcast, so I'm just going to give you the whole thing. All 10 minutes of Ted Simmons' really remarkable speech that he gave uh, as he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Congratulations to all the other inductees. Thank you, Jane Forbes Clark the National Baseball Hall of Fame for creating this special experience for everyone today. As a youngster in Detroit, Michigan, I was a Tiger fan. I grew up idolizing Norm Cash, Rocky Colavito, Frank Larry, and Bill Freed. It was in that era that I discovered my first hero, Al Kaline. He had no idea how much he impacted my life, or what a role model he became for me. In my youth, K-Line was my hero. As I stand before you as a man, he remains my hero today. There are many roads to Cooperstown. One look at this very special group behind me makes that clear. 
For some, it comes quickly, and for others, it takes a little time. For those like myself, the path is long, and even though my path fell on the longer side, I would not change a thing. However we get here, however we get here, none of us arrives alone. I'm no exception. Gene, Charlie Daniels, and Fred Fournier, my earliest coaches, prepared me for the sandlots of Detroit, where every major league prospect in Detroit came to play. Fred Davis and Ray Coles guided me through those four summers in the Detroit Amateur Baseball Federation. Dave Sebring, Freddie Goldberg, and Ed Bryant steered me through junior high school and high school athletically and academically. Athletically, I got all A's. Academically, not so much. But I did well enough that they eagerly passed me into the lap of Moby Benedict, who ushered me into the University of Michigan. Moby was the head baseball coach for the Wolverines. In June of 1967, I signed a professional baseball contract with the St. Louis Cardinals, making myself ineligible to play college baseball. Regardless, three months later, in September of that same year, I began classes in Ann Arbor. Moby Benedict made that happen for me, and I still owe him. My trip to the minors was a fast one. Joe Cunningham, my manager at the A-level, was the first major league hitter to tell me that I would become one myself. I believed him because he had been one himself. Warren Spahn, my AAA manager, was the first Hall of Fame member I was ever around on a regular basis. He was a proud and very confident man. It was George Kissel, the Cardinals' Mr. Everything, who had the greatest impact on me. He taught me fundamental baseball and how to play to win. I also learned from George how to win and lose with grace. He gave me my first taste of humility. Nobody came through the Cardinals organization to St. Louis without Kissel's blessing. Nobody. And his blessing had to be earned. If George Kissel said no, you did not go. I would like to take a moment to take and mention four other men who changed the lives of every player on this stage today by pushing the boundaries of player rights in this game. Kurt Flood, who paid the price for challenging the reserve clause. Catfish Hunter, for showing what would happen if a major league player actually became a free agent. Andy Messersmith, for charting the course to free agency by becoming the first major league player to overcome one and one. And Marvin Miller, who made so much possible for every major league player from my era to the present and the future. I could not be more proud to enter this great hall with this great man. Our game is about wins and losses, but after 50 years of organized baseball, I've learned that it's so much more. 
Baseball is about all the names and faces that remain firmly planted in one's memory. My major league experience as a player was long, and the rosters of those teams listed many great players. They also listed countless others, not nearly as recognizable. But their faces remain with me just as indelibly. My other baseball life has been on the administrative and player evaluation side. I've been a farm director, general manager, and a major league scout. Here I began to see the inner workings of the baseball industry, and a new world was opened up to me. My role on the administrative side of baseball has been just as important to me as my active playing career. I've worked with men like Dal Maxville, John Sheerholz, John Hart, Kevin Towers, and Jack Zarincic, all brilliant baseball men, and I've learned much from each of them. A quick special mention here for Peter Vukovic and Bruce Souter, the two baseball men I trust the most with what I know. We have seen much. As a talent evaluator and scout, I patterned myself after Bill Brick, Gordy Lakey, Chris Wynn, George Zura, Bobby Schaefer, and Charlie Kerfeld, all no-nonsense types, always willing to put their neck on the line for a player that they liked. It was on this non-playing side of my baseball career that I saw how huge Major League Baseball had become and realized how lucky I have been to have spent my entire working life in the game that I love. For those of you who are concerned that our game has changed, it has. Strike out, walk, homers today is pretty much what you get. But our game can change back, and eventually another George Brett will surface. He'll hit 360, he'll homer 40 times, he'll drive in 160 runs, he'll strike out 75 times, he'll walk 100 times. His on-base percentage will be 420. Our game is fluid. Hitters will begin to beat the defensive shifts, and the pendulum will swing back. Game evolves. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> Briefly, I would like to talk about advocates. While I've had many advocates in my lifetime, Robin Yount pushed really hard for my Hall of Fame candidacy. Bud Selig convinced myself and others that my candidacy was legitimate, and if elected, it would be for the good of the game. When the St. Louis Cardinals selected me first in the June 1967 draft, they brought me into their historic and very successful baseball family. The Milwaukee Brewers became my second baseball family. They embraced me and immediately made me one of their own. Next came the Atlanta Braves, followed by the Pittsburgh Pirates, Cleveland Indians, San Diego Padres, and the Seattle Mariners. I have spent lots of time in all of these baseball families, and they have affirmed and included me. So I have lived within many families and am about to step into baseball's most elite family. And I am incredibly humbled.
to close, a few short words about my real family, those who've been with me the longest and loved me the most. Tony Guerrero, John LaSala, and Steve Horn, thank you. John Hamm, thank you for bringing your mother and father along. It was so nice to fi finally meet her and to see your father again. Russell and Rick, thanks to you and your loved ones for coming and bringing Marge, David, and Russ with you. Nina and Ned, thanks also to you and yours for showing Bill, Bonnie Sue, and Bopper all around this remarkable place. John and Matthew Simmons, Haley, Vanessa, Mina, Dylan, Nari, and Madeline, you are all my very own. And of course, Marianne, my partner, my companion, my equal. She remains the same girl that listened with me not so long ago to the lyrics written by some pretty fabulous folks back in the day. And those words, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Peace and love, sweetheart. We finally got here. Thank you all. I love that little Beatles quote at the end as well. And uh, I think it's really poignant for a guy who's really well thought out. And uh, I had a chance after Ted Simmons was first elected to the Hall of Fame. And this was like about a year and a half ago, because remember, the pandemic wiped out the 2020 induction ceremony. So on the heels of Ted getting into the Hall of Fame, being elected to the Hall of Fame, I had a chance to talk to him. How's that sound, Ted? Hall of Fame or Ted Simmons? That sounds pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> it sounds really pretty cool. You know, you think about that sort of thing for a lot, a very large part of your life, and you, you wonder about it. And then when it finally happens, it's pretty cool. How did you find out that the Veterans Committee voted you in? Well, you sit and you wait. Um, you know, the 10 finalists are notified uh, about a week or 10 days ahead of time. And they tell you when the vote will be taken, okay? And so they say between, you know, 4 and 5 o'clock, um, in this case, uh, Pacific time, um, you know, you'll get a phone call or you won't. And I've been through this now four times, and I finally got lucky. But the three pre previous times, I sat and wait, waited for that phone like the other um, you know, guys did along with me this this past week, and you sit there and you wait and you pray and you beg and you do everything, <laughs> okay? And then I finally got the phone call, and I mean it's just like it's like water going over Niagara Falls. The weight of the world is lifted completely off you, and I mean it's like. It's like that. I mean, I'm not going over Niagara Falls, but I thought I was the other night when I got that phone call. I'm going to challenge you on one thing. You said that you were lucky to get that call, and I'm, I will challenge that because I was asked a few years ago why you weren't a Hall of Famer, and I didn't really have a good answer. And I think it's mostly instructive for me to compare players against their contemporaries. And I'm not knocking Johnny Bench at all, but he was the best catcher of your generation. But I looked at your numbers against his. You had more hits, more doubles, more RBIs, more games caught, half as many strikeouts, and a higher batting average than Johnny Bench did. Well, we were different. 
that's, I mean, some people like blondes. Some people like brunettes. We were different. And so it was, it, you know, everything that happened to, to John, he earned and he deserved. And he found himself in, in a the wonderful position to play in postseason with that big red machine in front of everybody who loved and watched the World Series baseball games in that period where he was great. And he, under the microscope, he produced, and he was under the microscope a lot, and people knew him. Um, but he approached the game offensively, you know, home run focused. And, um, you know, he, you know, was very, very dangerous in, you know, a, a situation where a home run could either tie you or beat you. And every time he got to the plate, you were concerned that he might homer right now. I was a different kind of threat. Yeah, I had power, and I switched hit, and I could hurt you, and I could win a game with a home run. But, uh, you know, I, I won a whole lot more games in my career with two out base hits with men on third base only or men on second and third or second base only when getting one hit right now is a really tough thing to do. And all I can say is, what people finally saw and realized about my career and ultimately, you know, saw value enough to elect me into the Hall of Fame, they saw a different player than Johnny Banks. And as I say, some people like blondes and some people like brunettes. And that's how I, you know, explain that. And like I say, he was in the World Series every year. I was watching the World Series, not playing in it. He was hitting homers in the World Series. I wasn't doing anything in the World Series. So um, the numbers are something you look at and reflect upon when you have time to sit down and study and compare, okay? And God, today it's done all the time. Um, you know, people today compare players in the 1930s to players in the 1990s. And statistically, they can break it all down and bogey everything in such a way that says, you know, this guy is probably about the same kind of player as such and such back in 1934. So um, it's essentially how, you know, my, you know, Hall of Fame candidacy evolved and then finally, you know, surfaced. Some guys like blondes, some guys like brunettes. I like that line. Uh-huh. Bench is a pretty good player. Yeah, he, oh, no, I, like I said, it wasn't a knock on Johnny. Johnny was great. He was fantastic. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, people, what, 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 what's happened here is people have finally realized that, well, maybe I wasn't so bad, you know, along with them. That's putting it mildly. Um, take me back to the winner between the 1980 and 1981 seasons. You're traded along with Pete Vukovic and Raleigh Fingers to the Brewers. What was your reaction initially to getting dealt away to another city after 13 years in St. Louis? The only thing I wanted to know at that time was the truth. And I asked Whitey Herzog to his face, who had arranged for this deal uh, with Milwaukee. I asked him one thing that I wanted to be certain of. I said, is Fingers in the deal? And is Vukovic in the deal if I say yes? And I could control the outcome because I was a 10-5 and five player at that time. And so I knew Milwaukee's club. I could see that they could really use a nice starting pitcher. 
i.e. Vukovic, I could see anybody in the world who could use the kind of closer Sanders was. And I realized they didn't have a everyday, you know, 140 game a season type catcher who could contribute offensive offensively to a club that was an offensive monster already. So I said, if Fingers is in the deal and Vukovic is in the deal and they're going to Milwaukee with me as a 10 to 5 player, I said, let's go. That's all I wanted to know. And when they said those two were going, I'm going too because the three of us could, could impact that team. And we obviously did impact that team. And, you know, when we all got there, Molly and, and Robin and Cooper and Ogilvy and Gorman and Charlie Moore and the rest of it, man, it was, it was fun. It was real fun. I asked Jerry Augustine this years ago, and I didn't know what his answer was going to be. I wasn't leading him anywhere, but I just was curious what the difference was between the Brewers teams that became good in the late 70s and the ones that made the playoffs in the early 80s after that trade that we were just talking about. And without hesitation, he said that you were the difference. What do you remember about that team that you came into and specifically what you provided then that wasn't already there? I had the experience of... of a career in St. Louis where I'd established myself and had already, you know, accomplished a lot. But the one thing I will say, um, and it's always been true, I mean, the Cardinals play a certain way. And the expectation over there is always the same. It's been there since Boyer came, Gibson Brock, all of them over there played winning baseball. And I say, what is that? What everybody talks about winning baseball. Winning, winning baseball is centered around one thing. You sacrifice yourself for the benefit of everyone. To the extent that even in the modern day of analytics, when a guy doubles in the bottom of the ninth and he's the home team and he represents the winning run at second base and nobody's out, that next batter, does not have to sacrifice bunt. But he has to make every effort to get that man over by hitting the ground ball to the right side. Now, that's called ABC baseball. A, for the leadoff double. B, for the ground ball to the right side. C, for the sacrifice fly that enables you to win the game without another hit. And when I say the Cardinals demand that from every Cardinal that comes through their minor leagues, every one of them, the pressure is great. And if you don't play that way, that way, if you are unwilling to play that way, you won't play in Cardinal red uniform. And what I brought was that emphasis. This is ABC boys, real simple. Lead off double, get them on the ground in the right side, sack, why we win. And when you're around talented people like Milwaukee was loaded with, all you got to do is say, hey, we're all going to do this together. And this is how we do it together. And everybody gets it. And everybody gets on the truck. And pretty soon that truck is steamrolling everybody. And that's what I was talking about that they saw when I did.
That's all I brought. How much did you think about the irony of the World Series in 1982 then, considering what you came from in St. Louis? Just two years later, you're playing against them in the Fall Classic. Most insane thing I've had to endure in my life. Bobby Force was the pitcher for St. Louis. I homered off him that night. Next morning, his daughter and my son carpooled together, going to the same school. And just crazy stuff like that. I mean, you know, it was the craziest thing I've ever had to go through. And, God, we had them. But, you know, you send Vukovic out there with a blown, absolutely blown rotator cuff, throwing half his, half his normal velocity, and still got through six innings with a 3-1 to lead and fingers down for the whole month. We still went to the seventh game. And at the bottom of the sixth, I thought we were going to win. You know? Guy said, what's the greatest moment in your life as, an, as a player? I said, sixth inning, St. Louis, game seven, up three to one. Game seven, I thought we were going to win. And it's the best moment in my whole life. I love a guy who can spin stories like that. And we think of Ted Simmons as a great baseball player, but he was also an executive as well. He was the guy who called up our friend Paul Wagner to the Major Leagues for the first time when Ted Simmons was the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I had a chance to talk to Wags on Wednesday about what his experience was with Ted Simmons. Not the player, not the teammate, not the peer, but the general manager and what that was like. You have a much different perspective of Ted Simmons than, like, say, for example, when I'm talking to Jerry Augustine or any member of the Brewers at that time. But Augie was the one who really was singing his praises. And even Ted Simmons today during his Hall of Fame speech, he was talking about Bud Selig and Robin Yount advocating for him to be a Hall of Famer. But what Augie was saying to me, and this isn't even on the air, he was just like, no, this was a guy who, in the clubhouse, he held people accountable, he led on the field, he led off the field, and you knew that he was going to spend a lifetime in baseball because he just thought and spoke and acted differently than most other catchers that he had ever had. But he was your general manager. What kind of a general manager was he? He he was exactly that same way. Where the most of the general managers that I've ever come across were were suit and tie guys. Ted, Ted would come down in the clubhouse. He would call me in into New York. We were at Shea Stadium, and he'd call me into the bullpen, and he'd he'd tell me things, and he'd remind me about when I was growing up watching the Milwaukee Brewers, and when he was catching Raleigh fingers, and when they were doing save situations, and he was telling me the advantages of pitching away from a hitter late in the game rather than coming inside. You know, he was a general manager, but also a pitching coach. And it was easy for me to relate to him or to listen to him because I grew up watching him. And the pitching coordinator for Ted was Pete Vukovic. And we've all got stories about Pete Vukovic, but Vuki is... <laughs> Most that you can't say on the air, yes. Right. <laughs> he, I know he, I he do. Might say, that might be more F-bombs than Jim Leland. But, um, <laughs> but, but Pete Vukovic... On the other on the other hand, was my pitching coordinator, and he's the one who went to Ted and told Ted that I was ready, and we all had a little powwow, the three of us, and and listening to guys tell me what to do, what I had to do, how to succeed in this game, or or how to try to succeed, coming from guys that I was Doug, I was I was a Brewer Pepsi fan club member in the '80s. I mean, I'm the one who ran out to my mailbox and got those color coded 
tickets, the purple, the red, the green. You and me both. And, you know, it's happy. Yeah. I, I mean, tell no, that people, was me. I tell people nowadays, do you remember what it cost? It was five bucks. It was five bucks for one ticket. I mean, like you said, you had the perforated sheet of general admission tickets, the uh, whatever the trinket was, whether it was a batting glove or a hat or a duffel bag or whatever it was, and then the one-year subscription to What's Brewing magazine. That's the best deal that any baseball team has ever had ever in life. Five bucks for all of that. It was crazy, and, and I loved it, and that was it. And then, you know, listening to these guys talk. So now a feather is, I mean, just watching him get into the Hall of Fame or hearing about him and, and hearing all the days that have led up until the induction, it's it's great because Ted Simmons, the baseball player, the Milwaukee Brewer, coming from the St. Louis Cardinals, that story is well documented. But me, behind the scenes, getting to the big leagues and actually sitting in a bullpen at Shea Stadium and having him travel around and, and actually breaking down my video or my charts with me was just an incredible experience with Pete Bukovic and Ted Simmons. Former Brewers right-hander Paul Wagner, who spent most of his career with the Pittsburgh Pirates and obviously uh, some time spent with Ted Simmons, who was his general manager as well. I want to close the podcast with this because last year was a terrible year for celebrity deaths, but it was also a terrible year for baseball luminaries' deaths as well. And Johnny Bench narrated a really, really incredible soliloquy to the players that were lost in 2020 and 2021. These are mostly contemporaries of Johnny Bench, who he played with or against, and just some of the ones, if you've forgotten, that we've lost over the last year, year and a half, Tom Seaver passed away, uh, Al Kaline, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, uh, Whitey Ford passed away, Joe Morgan, a teammate of Johnny Bench's, he passed away, uh, Phil Necro, Tommy Lasorda, Don Sutton, the former Brewer. I mean, this was one after another. It was a terrible, terrible year for baseball luminaries who passed away. Many of them starred in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And one of those players, of course, was the great Hank Aaron, who spent the beginning portion of his career uh, in Milwaukee, won his only World Series with the Milwaukee Braves in 1957, won an MVP in that same season, also finished up his career with the Milwaukee Brewers. One of the classiest gentlemen that I've ever been blessed to be around, blessed to interview him, blessed to have been in the same room with him, baseball royalty, and uh, he passed away early this year as well. And this was the uh, tribute narrated by Johnny Bench that was played at the Baseball Hall of Fame on Wednesday. It's been said that greatness is a subjective word, but how else to describe Hank Aaron? The numbers are a good place to start. 25 all-star selections, the record for most career RBIs, extra base hits, and total bases. And of course, those 755 home runs. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. There was greatness in the way the hammer played, those lightning quick wrists. Every hit seemed to be a line drive and the effortless way he ran and played right field. And there was greatness in the way Hank lived, the way he carried himself through the threats and hate as he broke Babe Ruth's home run record. What a marvelous moment. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south. For truly I reflect on my life, and particularly my 23 years in baseball, the way to fame is like the way to heaven through much tribulations. 
Hank Aaron was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1982. 20 years later, he received the Presidential Medal of Honor. A true civil rights hero, Hank Aaron lived a life of dignity and greatness. Every time I saw Hank, it was a smile as big as this. I, I hope that he liked me as much as I liked him because he was just a special man. That's it for today's show. We'll talk to you next time right here on the Doug Russell Podcast.